Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you just for that song, Bowing Before the Humble King. And Father, that is your calling for us is to, to be humble, to live in a world where you are at the center of it. And Father, we humble ourselves before your word, wanting to hear what you have to say to us. I pray that your word will be clear and that the teachings of Jesus will be pertinent to us. Holy Spirit, stir our souls to understand your will for us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the title of this message is, What Kind of Christian Are You? Now, that word kind, when you look it up, it means uh, a class or race distinguished by innate different characteristics. You have different kinds of seeds, plants, animals, and snakes. Now, the most poisonous snake in North America is the coral snake. You guys know the coral snake? It has bands of red, yellow, and black. Next to the black mamba, it is the most poisonous snake on earth. You do not want to be bit by a coral snake. Now, the coral snake has a natural doppelganger called the scarlet king snake. It also has bands of red, black, and yellow. So how do you tell the difference? Well, there's a little rhyme that some of you know. Red and yellow can kill a fellow. Red and black, friend of Jack. Now, don't get too close when you see a snake with red, yellow, and black. But if you get close enough, see if the yellow and the red touch each other. If the yellow and red touch each other, stand far away. If you see the red and black touch each other, still stand far away, but don't worry if you get bit, right? Two kinds of snakes, knowing one from the other, uh, can save your life. Now, when it comes to humanity, there are three kinds of people in the world. There are those who are saved and know it. These are individuals who understand that their sin has merited the righteous wrath of God. And they believe that on the cross, Jesus was punished as a perfect substitute and placed their faith and placed their faith in the risen Lord. They believe themselves to be converted and they are. They are saved and they know it. There's another group of people who are not saved and they know it. They don't have a category of salvation. They don't think salvation is necessary. Uh, They might be agnostic, so they don't believe in a God. They don't claim to follow Christ. Uh, They don't believe any of that. Or they have, uh, let's say they're, they're Buddhist and they don't have the concept of Christian salvation. They don't pretend to be Christians and they know it. You ask them if they're saved, well, not according to what you think it means, right? They are not saved, and they know it. But then you have a third category of people who think they are saved, but they're not. Those who think they are saved, and they're not. They believe that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They believe that Jesus died as a perfect substitute, that you must believe in him and follow him as your risen Lord, right? They believe all those things, but here's the key difference. They're not saved. It's like, what? 
Yeah, it's a real category. Later on, Jesus says in Luke 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? The fuller expression of this, of this is found in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, probably the most tragic verses you find in all Scripture. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This person sees himself as one kind of Christian, but is told by Jesus he's actually a different kind of Christian. He goes to Jesus, recognizing him, expecting that he's going to get a hug from his Savior because of all the wonderful things that he has done. And yet Jesus will not embrace him, but send him away because he did not obey. I, I can't imagine a worse fate than this, can you? To go see Jesus face to face, expecting to be embraced by him, only to be turned away by him. See, this is the problem of determining whether or not you are the right or wrong kind of Christian. Because if you can't do something to avoid this fate, wouldn't you want to do it? Right? There's really no comfort in being pushed away from Jesus, but then thinking to yourself, well, at least everybody on earth thinks I'm in heaven. There's no comfort in that. If you could do something about it, wouldn't you want to know? Wouldn't you want to know if you're the wrong kind of Christian before you see Jesus face to face? Well, this is where Jesus helps us. Let's turn to our text for today in Luke chapter 6, verses 43 through 45. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked off from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure of his heart produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, Jesus is not giving some sort of random advice. He's speaking to the community of disciples. These are people who have made a commitment to follow him. They have a general, uh, a general appreciation that he is the Messiah, that he is the chosen one. Uh, they've seen some of his miracles as far as uh, casting out demons, healing the sick. They were with him during some of these Sabbath day controversies where the religious establishment is questioning his leadership, and they're still following him. They, they at this point, believe the right things about Jesus. They believe that he is the Messiah who will rule on the throne of David. And Jesus addresses them as, as disciples. Although we know that some in their number are not. Judas is in the mix here. And so he gives his new band of disciples some encouragement. He talks about the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Plain. Now, you might be hungry you might mourn, you might thirst, you might be persecuted and hated because of me, but you're actually blessed. He goes on to also call on them to love those who persecute them, to love their enemies. 
And then he turns the discussion internal, and he talks about internal community relations. The reason why they can love their enemies is because they have been loved by God. They are to be merciful as their Heavenly Father is merciful. And part of that mercy extends to how they treat one another, and that's where we get the concept of a a community of charitable judges. He says in Luke 6, 37, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Now notice, there's a call to not judge and not condemn, but there's also a little stick here, right? If you judge, you will be judged. If you condemn, you will be condemned, all right? That, that is a very serious statement. That if you show a censorious, harsh, judgmental attitude, where you presume to take it upon yourself to condemn other people, to judge other people. That says something about your future. Then he goes on to say in Luke 6, 42, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is, that is in your brother's eye. Right? He confronts our, our tendency of elevation by negation, tearing other people down, fault-finding, kind of having a sick, twisted love of being holier than other people. Even though you have massive sin in your own life, you just pick, 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 criticize, criticize, and, and you have this special delight in it. And so Jesus is telling them, before you do that, what do you have to do first? You have to take the the log out of your own eye. And to take the log out of your own eye requires a certain degree of introspection. Hmm, do I have a log in my eye? Why is it that I only see out of one eye and not the other? I wonder. Am I self-righteous? Why do I always find faults in other people? Why am I more aware of other people's sin than my own? I wonder why, why that is. And to help with that, Jesus clarifies what you should be looking for. How do you know you are the right kind of Christian? How do you know that you're not someone who's going to be condemned because you condemned? How do you know you're going to be forgiven because you forgive? Well, Luke 6, 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a good tree... For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from the bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So here you have a very simple lesson. There's two kinds of of fruit, good and bad, that come from two kinds of trees, good and bad. The good tree produces good fruit. The bad tree produces bad fruit. And get this, the bad tree does not produce good fruit, and the good tree does not produce bad fruit. It's a very simple concept with very profound implications, especially given that the next verse says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? This is a call for introspection. What kind of tree, what kind of Christian are you? 
So we're going to look at the observation, then the application, and then kind of flush out what to do if you find out you're the wrong kind of Christian. So the observation is this, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Right? The tree is known by the fruit it produces. How do you know that an apple tree is an apple tree? Because it produces apples. Now, let's say I were to tell you I have an apple tree in my backyard, and you are, you know, and it looks like it's bearing fruit. I'm kind of confused by the kind of fruit it's producing, so I, I ask your expertise. I, I, I take you out back, and there's my apple tree, and it's producing these pallid green softball things that look like they have cancerous bumps all over them, right? Isn't this an apple tree? And then you inform me that no, actually, it's a hedge apple tree. You ever seen those things? I mean, they do look like cancerous softballs. You ever hit one of those with a baseball bat? I haven't either, but let me know what it's like. Right? That's not an apple tree. Those things are not edible. Trust me. But it's a given that that tree will produce that kind of fruit. So when you look at what he's saying is there's good trees and there's bad trees, and the trees are known by the fruit they produce. And then he begins to extend it a little bit later on. He says in verse 44, For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. Now there's a little bit of discussion about good and bad fruit. Some people think that it might be quality fruit versus rotten fruit. But this passage here makes it very clear that it's the kind of fruit Bramble bushes produce thorns. Fig trees produce figs, which are edible. Thorn bushes produce thorns. Right? But the grapevines produce grapes, which are edible. It's the kind of fruit can only come from the kind of tree. For each tree is known by its fruit. And what's interesting about thorn bushes and bramble bushes, those are special creations of the curse, right? It's kind of the warped, thorny, you, you pick a thorn. I mean, who, who loves thorn bushes? Have you seen the thorn bushes over here? Aren't they wonderful? I just love my thorn bushes. Right? There's no purpose of a thorn bush. They are destructive. They cause you to bleed. They lead to a lot of pain. A good tree produces good fruit. That is the observation, okay? Intuitive, I think we all know it. But then he gets into the application. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure of his heart, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Now that term, heart, is a loaded term. It essentially means the, con the, the command control center of the human. The Bible talks about having a soft heart versus a, a, a hard heart. Uh, the heart um, is kind of the, the, the central center of thoughts, emotions, wills, uh, your will, decision-making capacities. And in this case, it's likened to a storehouse, where if you have 
a bunch of grain in your storehouse, you can extract grain from your storehouse. And so when you look at this concept of good, if a bunch of good is in your heart, then good will come out of your heart. Now Jesus uses this heart fruit analogy in multiple ways. For instance, in Luke chapter 8, we see the famous parable of the soils. You guys know the parable of the soils? Sower goes out to sow, sows on a road, rocky soil, weedy soil, and then the good soil. The rocky soil springs up quickly and then fades away. The weedy soil is choked out. The road obviously springs out, springs forth nothing. But then you have the good soil. And this is what he says about the good soil in Luke 8, 15. As for that, in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart. Notice that term, heart. And bear fruit with patience. Right? When there is a good heart, it will bear fruit. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, this is also a very interesting insight, where to know what's in the heart and to know what's in somebody else's heart, um, the clearest indication from us, because we're not divine or omniscient, is to hear the words that they say. Right? If I want to know somebody's heart, hear what they have to say, uh, it's best discerned by having them express themselves. Right? I, I could hire a private investigator you could Facebook stalk somebody. We all do it. You can maybe read into somebody, but you don't know what's in somebody's heart until they actually say words. Agreed? Words are an indicator. Unguarded words are an indicator of what is resident in the heart. James makes this point. James 3, 8 through 12. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessings and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Notice the source, whatever you have in your heart, comes out of your mouth. And what comes out of your mouth may reveal a number of things about you. It might reveal that you have a lack of self-control. Or it might reveal that you are someone who's prone to give gracious, healing, and helpful words. Or you might say some things that are deeply hurtful destructive and not edifying now you can say that's not what i meant or that wasn't in my heart right you could say that but when the words are hanging out there sometimes it's better just to own it right you see another instance of jesus uh, relating uh, jesus addressing the heart and that's in luke chapter 11 in this chapter, Jesus is invited to the home of a Pharisee. 
He is invited over for, for a dinner, and Jesus does something scandalous. He does not wash his hands. Okay, now that's very scandalous in this day and age, right? Because of germ theory. But this wasn't, a, 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 this wasn't an issue of hygiene. This was an issue of ceremonial purity. Jesus did not abide by some of these extra ritual, extra biblical laws that pertain to washing your hands and, and eating. It was somewhat scandalous. And when the person sees it, he basically is stunned. He clutches his pearls because Jesus did not wash his hands. And this is what Jesus says to him in Luke eleven thirty nine. Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. So here is this man who observes all of these rituals and he actually takes it upon himself to take the speck out of Jesus' eye and Jesus pushes back and says, listen, you tolerate greed and wickedness and you're getting after me for not washing my hands? In other words, the Pharisee did not make a charitable judgment and Jesus calls him on it. He was full of greed and wickedness. He was all about being more righteous than Jesus, that he misses the whole point, right? Your expression, what you say, it does say a lot about you, and that is the teaching here. You know a tree by its fruit. Now, this kind of begs the question, why does this even have to be said? A good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. I mean... Of course, this applies to the human heart, but it's not as obvious as some people say. My son Nathan's taken a psychology class, and he had his book open, and I noticed a picture of the Ku Klux Klan. I thought, oh, I wonder what that's all about. You know, I want to make sure that he's getting a decent education, you know. And there's a subtitle that said, The Causes of Racism, or The Causes of Prejudice, and What Causes Racism? And, and basically the answer is, Racism is caused by learned behavior. Children are essentially born virtuous and pure, but then they are corrupted by their teachers and their parents. Does that make sense to you? See, the authors of that book never spent time in a daycare. (laughs) If you go to the three-year-old toddler room, don't go now, I'm sure they're all behaved now, If adults were to do what the kids do in the toddler room, we'd be calling the police every week. Right? I must admit, one of my children was a biter. Right? Can you imagine if the adults started biting each other because they didn't get their way? All this to say, the Bible teaches and nature teaches that, that we don't become sinners. We're not educated in becoming sinners. We are born sinners. We are born sinners. And, and the Bible, well, when it talks about the human heart, it doesn't have a lot, to, a lot good to say. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Did he hear that? The heart. When people say, follow your heart, remember, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. 
Titus 3.3 shows how this heart manifests itself in relationships. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Brock shared with us Romans 3.11-14. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together we have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. That's a pretty grim situation, right? For out of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. It seems like we have a room full of bad trees, If you were to look at humanity, every single one of us is a bad tree. And every single one of us produces bad fruit. That's a pretty grim situation. But this good and bad fruit analogy needs to be understood in the larger context of Luke. Specifically, John the Baptist. Right, and John the Baptist... He was also known for his winsome preaching. Luke 3, 7, he said, Therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? But he calls them all bad trees, doesn't he? Then he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Did you get that? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Everything, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Right? You are judged by your fruit. If there is bad fruit, you are cut down and thrown into the fire. But he does say, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Well, how can that be? Well, as he keeps on preaching in Luke 3, 15 through 17, the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff we will burn up with unquenchable fire. He points to a greater baptism, one with the Holy Spirit and fire. And, and what does that remind you of? Remember Pentecost, the flames, they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. John believed in the active work of the Holy Spirit, and for good reason. You see, the whole bad tree, you're all bad trees, you all have bad hearts, that was a common understanding in Scripture. Ezekiel 36, 25 talks about how does a bad tree become a good tree. The Lord says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit 
within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, that's the amazing promise. When you have a bad heart, a heart of stone, what is promised to you should you come to Christ is a new heart that is changed and transformed by the Spirit. Luke 5.32, Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. When sinners repent, they are changed. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Right? That's, that's the miracle of the gospel. When somebody embraces the gospel, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, actually comes into your heart, changes your heart, changes your inclinations, gives you a desire to want to pursue the Lord. You look at sin differently. You look at Scripture differently. You have a, you have a, a sense that you are a child of the King. It changes you. You become a good tree. And by nature, you produce good fruit. The kind of fruit has changed. Now, sometimes it might be rotten, but it's still going to be good fruit. And so the question is, what kind of fruit is produced by this new kind of tree? Well, again, this is where we look at the context. Look at uh, verse 35, Luke 6, 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Now notice, be merciful as your Father is merciful. You are to be a chip off the old block. He's merciful, you're merciful. You love like he loves. And remember, God's love is not conditioned on how he is treated, right? He loves us in spite of us, not because of us. There is a sense where we freely give love to one another. And and it's not a love that's based off of the law of reciprocity, where you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. We love because we have been loved. We freely, generously give it to other people. That is one fruit. If you want to know if somebody is a Christian, do they they sacrificially love other people? Did they sacrificially maybe even love their enemies? Is that what characterizes them? Secondly, another fruit, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. Give and it'll be given to you. Now, in this case, the bad fruit's pretty obvious, right? When you're harsh and judgmental, condemnatory, when you can't bring yourself to give grace to other people, that is bad fruit. On the other hand, some of you have been deeply wronged by someone. You have been deeply hurt, deeply offended. And contrary to your own better judgment, you have decided to extend mercy, to extend grace, and you have forgiven people who have seriously wronged you. That, my friend, is good fruit. Christians are the most forgiven people in the world. Therefore, we're the most forgiving people in the world. But when people respond to wrongs and hurts with, with bitterness, bitterness is just a way of extracting vengeance, by the way. You ever spend time with a bitter person? They're not fun to be around. 
especially if they're bitter towards you. When you reject bitterness, or let's say if you just struggle to forgive someone, my friend, that is, um, that's a scary place to be. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Judge not or you will be judged. So one is, is loving people. Two is, is having a forgiving spirit, a non-judgmental, basically a gracious spirit. And then here's a final test. Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Part of the fruit of repentance is straight out obedience, right? You do what the Lord has told you to do because he is the Lord. When John addresses the multitudes, talking about the fruit of repentance, the crowds ask him in 310, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Right? Isn't this a call to love, to meet needs? Secondly, the tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. It's a call to justice and fairness. Verse 14 Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. They're to be content, not extort or harm other people to enrich themselves. Right? These are all spirit-wrought good fruits. And you can tell if someone is the right kind of Christian by the fruit that they bear. Now, it might be possible to disguise your fruit. Going back to the hedge apple tree, I decide that, you know, I I don't like having a hedge apple tree, so what I'm going to do is get a bushel of apples, Honeycrisp apples, and nail them to my hedge apple tree. And you come over, and I'm like, oh, you think it's a hedge apple tree? Well, look at that fruit. But what happens to that fruit? It'll rot, right? because it's not native to that tree. You can disguise all of it, all that you want. You can do things like going to church, you might give some money, you might do all these other things to disguise it, but it's still not there. That good fruit that's designed to glorify God, that proves that you are merciful as your Heavenly Father is merciful, is just not native to you. You're not producing the kind of fruit that you know is native to someone who's been born again and changed by Christ. You, you, you know you believe all the right things. You believe the gospel. You believe that Christ died for your sin. You believe that you have to be born again. You even had a come-to-Jesus moment when you went to summer camp, but you look at your life, and you know there's something missing. You look around, and you see all these apple trees, and you're like, why am I producing these cancerous gourds? Why is it there? Well, if that is you, you have a choice to make, what to deal with it. How do you deal with the the bad fruit? Well, one way to deal with bad fruit is to make excuses for your fruit. You admit that it is bad fruit. Yes, you tend to lose it. You yell at your kids. But you grew up in a family of yellers is all you've ever known. It's just native to you. It's natural. And 
well, you can't, um, can't really change it. Or you might try the gaslighting technique. You know, when I called you an overweight, fat walrus, I didn't mean it. That wasn't in my heart. Well, you said it. What exactly did you mean by that? I was just trying to motivate you to take better care of yourself. Right? Making excuses. See, here's the deal. God can't forgive excuses. That's something he can't do. He can't forgive excuses. He can forgive confession, but not excuses. Whenever you excuse yourself, you don't take responsibility for your sin. You, you put it on somebody else. You make excuses. Secondly, you might change the standard. Right? God's standards are there, but he doesn't really expect us to abide by them. It's kind of like the speed limit, right? You know, as long as you're kind of in the general area, you're okay. I read of a, a celebrity Christian couple that celebrated their engagement and then announced to the world that they were doing things right, and they, they decided that they're not going to live together until they get engaged. Yeah. We're going to do it right. We're not going to live together until we get engaged. Well, why not try marriage? They honestly thought it was a good thing. You know, and I'm actually pretty stunned that, you know, in the broader realm of Christianity, um, fornication, sleeping with each other, is just tolerated. It's almost as if the standards are just too high. Right, I need to build my career, I need to go through all these schools, you know, we're dating, we've got needs. I mean, the Lord understands. Nobody actually does that. You change the standards. God doesn't expect me to be faithful. God doesn't really expect me to stay in this kind of marriage. I mean, come on. You change the standards so that you're still faithful. Secondly, or thirdly, is you presume upon grace. This is a person who will divorce her husband, quickly marry another man, and then repent of the divorce. I'll commit this sin, get what I want, then ask for forgiveness. And then I'm going to talk about how God's a God of grace and he understands these things. To this, Paul says it well in Romans 6, 1 through 2. What then shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You have to see sin as this awful entity, the one that wants to condemn you, steal your, your joy, and separate you from, from the Lord. I mean, a lot of times, uh, I was explaining to a friend of mine what heaven is like. And I came up with this analogy that heaven is a world of love. It, it, you know, one of the greatest feelings in the world is being in the presence of people who love you. Agreed? Better is a house of vegetables where love is than a house of great feasting and strife. To be around people who deeply know you, care about you, and love you is one of the greatest joys. And the great thing about heaven is we will be in the presence of Jesus who loves us. Heaven is not about eternal bowling. It's not about having a buffet that you can eat as much as you want and never gain weight. Heaven is about being in the presence of Jesus. And your sin grieves Jesus. 
Your sin is why Jesus had to die on the cross. There's that personal entity, that personal relationship. And the problem with presuming upon grace, changing the standard and making excuses, is they don't really want to stop sinning. They want to keep on producing this bad fruit. They don't want to change. So if you have bad fruit, there's another way you can address it. And that's by changing your heart. Changing your heart. I picked up this anecdote from R. Kent Hughes, and he got this from the memoirs of Bethan Lloyd-Jones, who is a wife of Martin Lloyd-Jones. She recalls her ministry in Wales and the remarkable conversion of a foul-mouthed man. His speech was so blasphemous and filthy that even his toughest acquaintances were sickened by him, so that he was almost always left to drink by himself. After meeting Christ, he could not speak without swearing. The words poured forth before he could even think. He was sickened, and he was sickened himself by the filth. But deliverance came when he was dressing for work and could not locate his socks. Instinctively, he shouted to his wife, I can't find my bleep socks. Where are my bleep things? As his words echoed back, sorrow gripped him, and he fell back on his bed and cried aloud, O Lord, cleanse my tongue. Lord, I can't ask for a pair of socks without swearing. Please have mercy on me and give me a clean tongue. Lying there, he knew something had happened. From that day on, no foul or blasphemous word ever came from his lips. And do you believe the Holy Spirit can actually change you? God can't expect me to be obedient. Uh, Yes, he can, because he's given you the Holy Spirit who has the power to execute the will of God, and the will of God is your sanctification. If you own your sin, if you finally say, you know, I don't want this in my life anymore, and you truly go to the Lord, he will give you the power to change so that you can bear fruit in keeping with repentance. There's a great promise in Hebrews 10.22. Let us draw near with a new heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Those who want to be a new tree and bear new fruit, that promise is available to you. Now you might be listening to this message and you think, you know what, when I look at my my life, I, I have been producing some pretty bad fruit. There's two reasons for this. Number one, you might be a Christian, somebody who knows and loves the Lord, who has fallen into a a season of darkness. I think about David, a man after God's own heart. Agreed? Committed adultery. I think it can make a case that he raped a woman, then killed her husband to cover it up. Endured that for nine months. It was odious in the sight of the Lord. He was confronted by a prophet of God, Nathan. And what did he do? He repented. There might be something going on in your life right now. I don't know what it is. It might be a secret internet history. It might be an illicit relationship. It might be some unethical business practices. It might be your entertainment choices. I don't know what it is. But it's bad fruit, and you know it. What's the solution? Is you repent. Or you might find out that you're not a backslidden Christian, you're just not a Christian. 
when we talk about bearing fruit, loving, forgiveness, uh, having an appetite for the word, all of this stuff just seems foreign to you, and you don't know what to do. And you know what the answer to your problem is? You repent. Do you kind of understand where I'm going with this? Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, we'll just work that out later. But for now, what should you do? You repent. See, when you confess your sin, you own it. You can claim his forgiveness. And you can claim the promise of Hebrews 10.22. Let us draw near with a new heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. When you draw near to, to God, when you put your sin on the cross, do you know what you demonstrate? You, you demonstrate that you are the right kind of Christian. Let's pray. Well, Father, I am grateful for the clarity of Jesus' message. And Lord, truth be known, we look at our life, we know that not all the fruit is good. But we also know that sometimes, you know, the fruit is indicative of our heart and where we are. And I pray that we will yearn to produce good fruit. I pray for those who heard this message and they look at their life and, and can honestly say that the Spirit's transforming work is evident and that the fruit is real. That they will give you all praise and glory for the good fruit that comes through them. I pray for anyone here who maybe feels a little bit indicted. Perhaps they feel like I was talking to them. Lord, may they know that that wasn't me, but you, through your Holy Spirit. And in your kindness, you're bringing to light something that needs to be addressed. And I pray that they won't let it rest. That they will confess that they'll draw near to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're going to sing one more song.